I'm John LaBelle, your host, and this is Visionaries. We're here on the Progressive Radio Network. That's PRN.FM, Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, although it could be any time in your part of the world. And just a reminder, you can hear our back shows in the archives at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N as Nancy.com, and... Today, I want to talk about our digital world, but before I get to that, first, uh, just a reminder, uh, you can even hear us in your car. Just tune your phone to prn.fm, and uh, if you have an old car like I do, uh, plug it into the auxiliary on your car radio, and if you have a newer car, uh, it'll Bluetooth. (laughs) When I run a car... All of a sudden, it starts playing stuff from my phone, you know. It's like the Bluetooth picks it up. I don't even turn it on. I don't know how it does that. But I found that, you know, um, AM radio reception, when I listen to talk radio shows, uh, the reception is so poor that I very often just put it on my phone and then tie it in uh, by the auxiliary cable. And before I do anything else... I want to just mention, uh, I almost never talk about architecture. I happen to be an architect. (laughs) I'm a professor of architecture uh, at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. But there are two amazing exhibits going on right now. So uh, I was about to say if you're at all interested in architecture, but I should say everybody should see these shows. If you're in New York... Museum of Modern Art has a massive Frank Lloyd Wright show. And, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright is not only the most important uh, modern architect, <coughs> excuse me, but also you know, a major 20th century cultural figure and a major spiritual philosopher. So we should all be aware of that. I mean, if there was a Picasso show Uh, We'd be at MoMA. We would want to go. And we should see this show. Now, what happened was Frank Lloyd Wright's archive was in the keeping of a foundation that that was established. And it was physically at Taliesin and a a, uh, compound that he had built in Arizona. And it's quite an expensive undertaking to Uh, keep up an archive. It's, um, you know, there's restoration, there's preservation. you got to keep things at the right temperature and humidity. So they eventually gave up on it, and the uh, Taliesin Foundation turned everything over to Museum Modern Art and Columbia University's Avery Library. So Museum Modern Art's got to be doing periodic shows from this archive, And they have one right now. What they did was 
They gave five different curators, each one a room and a pick of the archive to do something. So you want to see that, and it's there for... Did I print that out? Anyway, it's there right now. Check how long it's going to be there. Now, at the same time, uh, we shouldn't be ranking the arts this way, but uh, we like to say the second most important American architect is Louis Kahn. And I happen to be, uh, well, I, uh, I was at the University of Pennsylvania studying architecture when Kahn was teaching there. And I wrote a book about Kahn, Between Silence and Light, Spirit and the Architecture, Louis I. Kahn. And you can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. But anyway, um, the University of Pennsylvania has an amazing archive of uh, many architects, including Louis Kahn. And from that archive, there's an exhibit that's been traveling around the country, Louis Kahn, The Power of Architecture. And it is going to be in Philadelphia from August 11 to November 5. So uh, there's something called the Fabric Workshop and Museum. And uh, where are they? They're downtown. I just went there. Pull off the bridge and I was right there. Anyway, you'll find it online. And they're having a series of talks coming up um, uh, in conjunction with the show. Here we go. 1214 Arch Street, Philadelphia. Well, it's a huge show, magnificent models, great drawings, and we like to say Khan's sort of an architect's architect. So anybody can appreciate Frank Lloyd Wright, and anybody should appreciate Khan, but maybe um, if you're an architect or you're into architecture, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be another 20 years before there's a show of this caliber of Kahn's work. So you definitely want to want to see that. And, you know, one of the things about architecture uh, that I have a hard time communicating to my students, but, you know, I work at it, and that is there's a tendency to say, well, there's the sweeping idea and then, uh, you know, we have to develop the details. Well, if you think about it, uh, we don't say that Faulkner um, has a sweeping idea and then anybody could write down the words. Uh, the words are as much the art as the sweeping ideas. And <clears throat> probably that notion, you know, now, where, where, raise hands. Uh, <laughs> where, where have we heard that notion? What's the famous quote? And, of course, it's Mies van der Rohe, God is in the details. So the details are not something that's added on later, but it is uh, the work. So if you're a writer, you're into writing, uh, you just love, you know, the words and the way they're put together. Well, if you think that way, uh, you're going to appreciate Louis Kahn because the way the materials are put together is uh, as much as his spiritual philosophy, um, the uh, Kahn's architecture. 
<clears throat> Colin is a major spiritual philosopher. It's kind of a combination of uh, Platonism and Taoism in his work. Um, Khan uses the, it's in the title of my book, The Metaphor of Silence and Light. And the notion is, you know, Khan would begin every project with the question, you know, a client comes in, we need a school. So Khan would sit down with uh, the people in his office or uh, the uh, students in his graduate studio and talk about it. And the first question he would have is, what does this building want to be? And we can sort of appreciate that. But then if you think about it, wait a minute, um, two problems here. One is a building's in an inma- a building is an inanimate thing. How can it want anything? And number two, it doesn't exist yet. We haven't designed it yet. So, and Kant's notion is that the building pre-exists our design of it, and it resides in a realm of potential, which he calls silence. And the architect... Um, brings the building from this realm of potential into material manifestation. And my, my book is a long—it's a long process. My book's a description of that. But in that, it unfolds an entire philosophy of who and what we are as human beings. And, of course, the world's greatest architecture has always addressed that. That's why we— uh, modestly <laughs> call architecture the mother of the arts. Anyway, uh, that isn't even what I want to talk about today. Maybe I'll do a show on architecture sometime. But just a reminder to everyone, if you're in or anywhere near New York, definitely get over to MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, and catch the Frank Lloyd Wright show. And uh, you'll have to look that one up to get the date. It's not going to be there that much longer. And the Con Show in Philadelphia is there till November 5th. So uh, definitely recommend it. And if you're a New Yorker, if you're in New York, I recently discovered the bus. You know, it used to be either, I very often drive to Philadelphia, but um, otherwise I take the train. And oh my God, <laughs> you know, if you, if you book in advance, a bus ticket's $5. <laughs> How do they do that? Anyway, um, uh, there are a couple buses, the, uh, what is it, Mega Bus and Bolt and a couple of others um, are hauling people all around the country at these uh, great prices. Well, I also want to mention that um, I have some guests coming up. Next week, I'm going to have on Dr. Tina Selig, S-E-E-L-I-G. And I did a book on creativity, um, visionary creativity, how new worlds are born. It says right here on the cover. Visionary creatives swim in the culture of our day. The things they create in art, design, science, technology, business, embody our culture and at the same time pull us into the future. Well, in working on this book, I... Uh, checked out all the other books and, of course, went online and the place to go. Uh, you'll notice I work by digressions. 
digressions. So uh, when I was a kid, I had an LP record, and one side of it was special relativity theory, and the other side was the nature and size of the universe. Well, that was the 1950s. Actually, I've seen the record for sale on eBay, but I don't have a turntable. <laughs> so uh, I haven't bothered to uh, buy it. But uh, it'd be interesting to see what they were saying back then. But I'd listen to it over and over. I'm into that kind of stuff. But that was the only thing I have. I had. Today, you just, you know, pick your favorite. I, just this morning, I was, you know, what's Peter Thiel up to? So you just go to YouTube and put in my interests, Peter Thiel or Tina Selig or Ray Kurzweil or Stephen Wolfram. Those are some of the people I follow, Peter Diamantes. And then <clears throat> go over to filters and say, you know, the last month. Otherwise, you'll see the same stuff you've already looked. But, hey, is there anything new? You know, has... Uh, has uh, Stephen Wolfram uh, posted anything new on on YouTube? And of course, they don't typically don't do the posting. What happens is they'll lecture at some university, could be in Europe, and somebody will record the lecture and somebody will put it up, and uh, you know, probably without permission. But who cares? It's there, and we can all uh, benefit from it. You might recall a couple of weeks ago. We were looking at uh, some stuff from Marshall McLuhan. I showed you some video clips uh, on our show. Not today, but sometimes when I'm doing this show, you can switch over to the, um, the Progressive Radio Network section of Facebook and see us live. Gary Noll, you can usually see live there. And occasionally I'll do it if I have a live guest or if I'm showing some video clips. But anyway, I'm a strong recommender of those video clips. And I was searching and I ran into uh, Tina Selig. Wow, boy, what a high energy person. So, um, uh, and that high energy has uh, brought her to a faculty position in the Department of Management, Science, and Engineering at Stanford uh, University. And then she's on all kinds of boards. She teaches courses on creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. And um, uh, she's won all kinds of awards. So, and her background, PhD in neuroscience from Stanford School of Medicine. And... Uh, but she's then become interested in how the mind works. And, you know, one of her great quotes is, uh, how do you get creativity out of the mind and into the world? So uh, that'll be our guest next week. And the week after, I have another great guest. And that is uh, Christine Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E who you'll also find all over YouTube. And again, uh, Tina Selig, you find her great lectures on YouTube. And years ago, I, uh, some of my uh, younger faculty members who keep up on this stuff 
Uh, but back in the 80s, they you know, mentioned nanotechnology, molecular manufacturing, that in the future, things will be made one molecule at a time or one atom at a time. And, and there'll be these little pincer arms that'll pick up a carbon atom and put it in the precise place. And, you know, you're going to need a lot of them since you want to make something big. Um, and atoms are small. But eventually you'll have assembled something of substantial size. And because it's molecularly or even atomically precise, um, for example, uh, steel or iron might be thousands of times stronger because the strength of a material is determined uh, not by the bond across atoms or molecules, but at the weakest point of the flaw. So if you have um, a metal and there's a bunch of crystals, and each crystal might be very strong, but where the two crystals join together might be weaker. Well, chain's no stronger than its weakest link, so that's the strength of your material. But if you can make your material atomically precise, uh, you know, maybe you'll have, uh, we'll have uh, 50-pound cars made out of diamonds, you know, because diamond is an ideal material, uh, very strong, <coughs> uh, great electrical properties. It's a, uh, like silicon, it's a, uh, um, a resistor and a, and a conductor, semiconductor. So you can make chip, you know, computer chips out of it. Only problem is uh, diamonds are hard to work with and uh, rare. Well, <laughs> made out of carbon. There's a lot of carbon around. So, uh, you know, once we make stuff just by assembling carbon atoms, maybe you'll uh, um, be, uh, hmm, you know, have radically new materials. So the vision of nanotechnology was you would have this toaster oven-sized thing in your in your home and feedstocks, you know, you'd feed it hydrogen and carbon, et cetera, and you'd type on the keypad, you want a diamond ring, uh, you go out to dinner, and uh, like a 3D printer, while you're out, one carbon atom at a time, it assembles uh, a diamond ring for you or a T-bone steak, or uh, anything you want. Uh, very economically, everything, as I like to say, will be as cheap as potatoes. <laughs> I, uh, uh, you know, like to say to my, to my students, why is, a, uh, why, why is a Lamborghini more expensive than a, than a Ford Taurus? I mean, you know, they weigh the same. Uh, they're, they're made out of the same materials. Uh, once you Xerox them or 3D print them, uh, why should there be any difference in cost? doesn't cost any more to Xerox Shakespeare than it does my course outline. So, uh, <laughs> so totally new ways of thinking. Well, anyway, this um, uh, field was founded by K. Eric Drexler, and K. Eric Drexler and Christine Peterson formed something called the Foresight Institute. And you'll find them at Foresight, F-O-R-E-S-I-G-H-T dot org. And <clears throat> about 15 years ago, I started going to their conferences. And wow, really great conferences. So um, 
over the years, I heard uh, Christine Peterson lecture at Foresight Conferences and at, who's this interesting guy, I hope to interview him sometime on the show, John Smart. What a name! <laughs> S-M-A-R-T. Um, and again, uh, go catch him on YouTube. And I... Uh, um, Anyway, he organized, he has an organization called Accelerating Change. And he has an Evo Devo point of view about the human future. You can look that up and evolution and development. And he organized uh, conferences on accelerating change. And they were great. Uh, uh, unfortunately, about 10 years ago, he stopped doing them. And, uh, and it were, <laughs> I had a friend who goes to the TED conferences. That's dicey stuff. You know, there's like 6000 bucks to register. That's out of my price range. And then you got to pay for your trip in your hotel on top of that. So uh, he would be going to these TED conferences, and I'd be going to John Smart's Accelerating Change conferences. And I was hearing better stuff <laughs> for 300 bucks. So anyway— I would hear Christine Peterson at those conferences. So in in two weeks, uh, hopefully, we'll have her on and uh, keep up on what's going on in these fields. Well, before I get to today's subject, one more thing, and that is uh, I wanted to let you know I've just been finishing a couple of books. And uh, just to uh, just so you know. If you're uh, overwhelmed by trying to read a book, uh, I am. <laughs> I sit in bed, and you know, maybe it, and I go to bed an hour before my wife does, and then she stays up with, uh, or a couple hours, because she stays up with uh, her brother-in-law, my brother-in-law, her brother who lives with us, and then they, you know, they catch up on Walking Dead and all the stuff that that they watch that I don't watch. Walking Dead's too gory for me. But, <laughs> so, you know, I kill about an hour. And do I want to read a book or do I want to watch two um, uh, uh, reruns of Big Bang Theory? <laughs> I end up watching two reruns of Big Bang Theory. But I listen to audiobooks. So, I just finished a book on Claude Shannon, A Mind at Play. How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age by Rob Goodman and Jimmy Sony, S-O-N-I. Well, <clears throat> um, I actually discuss Claude Shannon in my book, Visionary Creativity. And one of the points I make, if you haven't heard of Claude Shannon, um, uh, he just sort of, you know, got forgotten. And he's being brought back, but uh, back in the... In the 1970s, 60s, and 70s, you would have heard of him. He would be on the front cover of magazines and stuff like that. And he was described as ranking with Einstein as a scientific figure of the 20th century. All he did was invent, you know, the computer, the whole thing. <laughs> he did two things. One is, when he was a graduate student, his master's thesis was <clears throat> the following. Um, he figured it, well, there was something, there's something called Boolean algebra or Boolean logic. And that is, 
<clears throat> to highly simplify. Well, okay, let's describe it from uh, from you know what we heard from Socrates. Um, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. So you can do that mechanically. You can make a diagram that, <clears throat> you know, you make a circle of, a uh, big circle, all men, and then you put a, inside that, you put a circle, Socrates, and then the characteristic of all men is that they're mortal, and Socrates is inside that circle, so he's mortal. Well, um, or if A is true and B is true, you get C, that kind of thing. Well, what Shannon figured out is that relay switches could do that. You could mechanize Boolean logic, or you could mechanize logic. And we have a term for that. It's called a computer. <laughs> you know, they said, oh, my God, you know, we can do that with relays, and we can do that with vacuum tubes, and then we can do that with transistors, and then we can put today several billion transistors on one chip in our smartphone or computer. And everything it does is based on Shannon's master's thesis. So it's sometimes called the most important master's thesis of all time. Well, if that wasn't enough, he then went to work at Bell Labs. My sister lives at Bell Labs. Uh, <clears throat> Bell Labs is in a building in the West Village that became artist housing. It's called Westbeth. And uh, you might have heard of it or know someone who lives at Westbeth. But it used to be Bell Labs. And they did three things there. They started the Manhattan Project, invented the transistor, and invented information theory. <laughs> then they moved to New Jersey. We haven't heard anything from them since. <laughs> anyway, um, so Shannon was at Bell Labs. And it was one of those places where you could do anything you want. You know, you didn't have a boss telling you what projects to work on. Sort of like being a tenured professor. And Shannon would ride up and down the halls on his unicycle juggling. <laughs> That's what he figured he was there for. But while he was at it, he was faced with the question of how do you measure how much information you can move through a wire? Which is something the phone company was interested in. You know, theory, what's the theoretical limit? And how do you, what, what is information? How do you measure it? Well, he said uh, the first thing, and we, we realized this is just a few years ago, 1948, he published um, a mathematical theory of communication and in so doing invented information theory. And what he had to do was he had to say, what is information? And today we, we have uh, a theoretical basis for that as a whole field of information science. But at the time, he had to invent it. He did it in this paper. And what he, he, the confusion was, what's the relationship of information to meaning? In other words, if I have a page of just random letters, and I have another page that's from a book. Well, the page from the book makes sense. It has meaning. The page of random letters is that information. It doesn't say anything. Well, 
he clarified. He said information and meaning are two different things. Information is the difference between uh, <clears throat> what it would be randomly and what you have set out. So, yes, there's information in random letters. In fact, more information than there is in a page from a book. And I won't go into—maybe we'll do a show on information theory sometime. But anyway, the ultimate measure, the ultimate unit of information was, he said, a bit or, you know, a one or a zero, (laughs) which is how computers work. So he figured that out. So based on that, they, uh, you know, the computer revolution uh, launched ahead. So anyway, there's a book by Gleck who did that wonderful book, Chaos. If you haven't read it, read it. You know, what is chaos? And the whole, you know, if a butterfly flaps its wings in Beijing, we'll have a thunderstorm in New York a month later. You've heard that uh, about chaos theory. Well, what is chaos? And uh, it's unfolded into a wonderful science. And neglected a book called uh, Chaos in which he unfolds the whole thing. It actually begins with a figure, with apologies, I'm not remembering his name right now, but he had been um, modeling the weather, a very, very, very simple model of weather, or let's say planetary orbit, and in a computer, and you know, it said the planet's going to do this out so many iterations. And then he moved the program over. Um, uh, he, he was rerunning it, and it did something wildly different. And he said, oops, um, you know, there's something uh, uh, screwed up here. There's a bug in the software. Nope. There's a bug in the hardware. Nope. And he finally pinned down the problem. Problem was he was using two different programs, and you go out, you know, like six decimal points, and then you round it off. And these two different programs were using different rules for how, after six decimal points, to round off a number. Well, you'd think, if I'm the same within six decimal points, how big a difference could I get in, uh, you know— Twenty orbits later of this planet around this sun in this computer model. Well, it turns out a tiny, tiny difference can make a huge outcome very quickly. As in a butterfly flapping its wing or not flapping its wing can totally change the weather in a way that uh, in the real world we're never going to predict. But Uh, That's chaos. Chaos doesn't mean randomness, but it means exquisitely sensitive to um, tiny, tiny difference in initial conditions. Well, anyway, Gleck did that book. And he did another book more recently, which is an absolute must-read, called The Information. And he talks about what is information and how the whole thing unfolded. And in it, we get, uh, you know, for example, very early on, the story of Lady Lovelace. 
and Lady Lovelace invented computer programming. So uh, we get these great stories and Babbage's computer and stuff like that. But it takes it right up to today. And he spends quite a bit of time on Claude Shannon. Probably the first time many of us heard of Shannon, although uh, I was exposed to him, and I have his book, A Mathematical Theory of Communication. Uh, I have too many books, and that's one of them. Uh, but also, there's a terrific book, a bit dated, but definitely, if you're going to go into information, this is the first book you read, which is Great Ideas in well, let's see. Great Ideas in Information Theory, Language, and Cybernetics by Inder Singh. So definitely recommend it. But anyway, um, so if you want to know who Claude Shannon is, it's now a biography, a mind at play, how Claude Shannon invented the information age. Definitely um, recommended read. So I just finished that. And, um, oh, I just printed out from Wikipedia, Claude Shannon, an American mathematician, electrical engineer, and cryptographer known as the father of information theory, noted for having found an information theory with a landmark paper, a mathematical theory of communication that he published in 1948. He's perhaps equally known as the founder of digital circuit design theory in 1937, when, as a 21-year-old master's degree student at MIT, he wrote his thesis demonstrating that elect electrical applications of Boolean algebra could construct any logical numerical relationship. Anyway, that's uh, Shannon. And then, let me uh, juggle my papers here. Um, I also just finished Life 3.0. Now, this book just came out like a couple of weeks ago. It's interesting reading a book when something has happened, you know, like a month ago. And you're reading a book and it's up to date about this thing that happened a month ago. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but it's got, a, of course, a good book has to last longer than that. So, Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Now, I've always been, and still somewhat, an AI, artificial intelligence, skeptic. And <clears throat> um, years ago, I had all the books. I had a whole shelf of AI books in the uh, 60s and 70s. Actually, back in the early 60s, I had a roommate uh, at University of Pennsylvania who was studying Dave. Dave was studying artificial intelligence. Wow. <laughs> I should have gone into artificial intelligence. Penn was a pioneering um, computer school. They, they built the ENIAC at Penn. It's one of the, for, in, in some definitions of the computer, the ENIAC was the first computer. This is a building right across the walk, right from uh, the architecture school where I was a student. I didn't even know it was there. I could have gone over and looked at it. But anyway, um, I was always a skeptic. And the um, artificial intelligence had some uh, early successes, 
and also made some really outrageously stupid claims, such as, imagine you have an electric calculator, and which was a big deal when they first came out. You know, those little pocket calculators? Wow. You know, they were expensive initially. Now they come free in your iPhone. But anyway, um, imagine you hit 2 plus 2 equals, and it says 4. So the AI advocates would say, it understands that you want to know what 2 plus 2 is, and it tells you that it is 4. I mean, give me a break. You take a bowl, and you put two marbles in it, and then you put two more marbles in it, and there's four marbles in it. That's what the calculator's doing. The marbles and the bowls don't understand anything. So... Anyway, there were some initial sort of interesting successes in the early 60s. And they very quickly started to claim, um, you know, within 10 years, we're going to have artificial general intelligence, AGI, or strong AI. And what they meant by artificial general intelligence was... uh, well, okay, you know, yeah, we can do calculations. And yeah, you know, they can play tic-tac-toe. And yeah, they can uh, uh, play checkers. But they'll never be able to beat a chess grandmaster. Guess what? Not only can they beat a chess grandmaster, but you can get a free online program for your Mac. That will beat a chess grand, will beat the chess world champion. So, hey, you know, it did start to do some things. Well, that's expert systems. And, you know, they can diagnose uh, uh, x-rays, diagnose diseases. uh, Should we drill here for oil? Well, you know, there's these kinds of microorganisms in the surface, and we get this kind of sonic response if we set off some dynamite and we get some sound echoes. And uh, and then an expert would say, you know, I think it's worth spending $3 million to drill here. And, you know, a really good expert is right uh, uh, 10% of the time as opposed to 1% of the time. Well, they eventually could get uh, computerized expert systems that might be right 50% of the time. So, yeah, they can do that. But that's they've still got nowhere with uh, artificial general intelligence, a computer that could do anything. You could talk to it, say, hey— um, you know, what's, what, what's your take on André Gide's Le Cave du Vatican? And uh, how would you stack that up against, uh, you know, do you think that was influential on the uh, Nouvelle Nouveau, the Nouvelle Vague, and, um, you know, the, the new novel and things like the erasers? And while you're at it, uh, you know, do, do, you, do you think there'll be a resolution between... Uh, general relativity and quantum theory, and the computer could discuss that as well as a smart person could. Well, they haven't been able to do that. Um, And I've always been 
you know, an enthusiast of, they haven't been able to do that. <laughs> I give the computer science professor where I teach a hard time. But uh, something's beginning to happen. And one of the interesting things is the, you know, the um, spokesperson expert for artificial intelligence has been Marvin Minsky. He founded the department at MIT, and he was a, the major figure spokesman for it. And uh, early on, he's notorious for having um, suppressed neural networks. And the thinking is he was probably right that given the resources of the time, neural networks wasn't going to work. But now it does. And a couple months ago, there was an article, uh, front cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine, uh, about a small group. And it's amazing how these things happen. You know, think of the... Um, Think of the Manhattan Project. So it was, what, I don't know, what, five or six years, maybe 10,000 people, uh, billions of dollars. So Google set aside a team of five people, and they cracked neural nets and language translation. So if you go back uh, a couple months and you take... And I, I did this. So you take a, a paragraph that, you know, a little bit complicated, maybe eight-line, ten-line paragraph in English. Put it into the previous Google Translate. The way you can do that, Apple hasn't gotten there yet. So open up the Translate app uh, or Gizmo in, uh, in your Mac and put in this paragraph. Translate it into Chinese. And then take the Chinese, translate it back to English, and you get gibberish. <laughs> With a lot of work, you might be able to get a little bit out of it, you know, figure out a little bit about what the hell that was. Now, do it with today's, and they only updated a couple months ago, uh, put it in Google Translate, take your English paragraph, put it in Google Translate, translate it to Chinese, take the Chinese, translate it back to English, and it's literature. It's like 99% correct. You know, it'll change a couple words, which are a judgment call. It's still correct. And then maybe it'll get one or two wrong. But, you know, give it another month. <laughs> so, you know, and now... It's still, you know, we can say it didn't understand uh, the English or the Chinese, but it did an accurate translation. Well, uh, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean we're going to make um, a leap to conscious machines? Or even if they're not conscious, are we going to get... Uh, artificial general intelligence. Well, I've been a skeptic, but I'm getting nervous <laughs> as a result of reading Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence by Max Tegmark. Now, interestingly, Max Tegmark is a 
a physicist and a cosmologist, but he studies consciousness and computer science and artificial intelligence. So he organized uh, a huge conference, and they, uh, the, the uh, artificial intelligence people are believing we're so close to this really happening. <clears throat> and one of the things they fear is that when you get some degree of uh, artificial intelligence, you'll then take, you know, when it's 100 times more intelligent than us, you'll then take that intelligence and you'll ask the computer to make a next-generation artificial intelligence. And it'll be a million times more intelligent than us. And then it'll, on its own, make a next-generation, etc. <clears throat> so the big concern is, how do we keep them from deciding that we're in irrelevant at that point? <laughs> so... Um, I used to go to these conferences. I can't remember the guy's name. But I'll have him on sometime as a guest. But there's a guy at all the conferences I'd go to who had an organization for beneficial artificial intelligence. Well, duh, who's for, you know, harmful artificial intelligence? Well, it turns out he was on to something. There's a big problem out there. <laughs> you know, uh at what point does the heat-seeking missile, the computer and heat-seeking missile, decide, oh, you know, I think I'll... Uh... <laughs> so, anyway, the book is about um, what we mean by intelligence, what we mean by consciousness, and when it's the machines are going to start to do it. As I said, I remain a skeptic, but... Uh, there's really a lot going on out there, and uh, Max Tegmar does a great job of summarizing it. I just finished the book, strongly recommend it. I've emailed him to see if he'll come on the show, so hopefully soon. And uh, well, so while we're at it, geez, I, don't know, I wonder if I'll get to today's topic. Uh, the other book that I'm in the middle of, haven't finished it yet, is Revolutionary Wealth, How It Will Be Created and How It Will Change Our Lives by Alvin Toffler and Heidi Toffler. So both the Tofflers have now died, Alvin Toffler, just a couple years ago. But this is a recent book they did. And um, you might have heard the term Future Shock. Well, that was a book in the 70s by Alvin Toffler, and I have to confess that I never read it. Um, but everybody knows what's in the book. It's a, what a perfect title. You know, it's that the future is coming so fast we've gone into shock. There it is. There's the whole book. Well, his next book was The Third Wave, and I did read that. And uh, to this day, I still uh, occasionally assign parts of it in my Impact of Technology course. So I'm into all this stuff because I teach it, and <clears throat> as well as architectural history. And uh, Toffler interestingly used the, the term, the third wave. And at the time, we were talking about, oh, you know, let's see, we had... The Bronze Age, 
No, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the what? Industrial Age. And now we're in the Information Age. And interestingly, I remember uh, now the reason Toffer uses third wave instead of information age, second wave is the industrial revolution, first wave is the agricultural revolution. But the reason he used the term third wave is he said, well, you know, it's more than the information age. Yeah. And he talked a lot about biotech. I remember thinking back in the 70s, yeah, you know, we got these new drugs, and uh, but, you know, that doesn't compete with computers. Well, all of a sudden, we cracked DNA. Uh, we could sequence it, and we with now with CRISPR, oh, my God, not only can you edit DNA the way you might, you know, edit text in your word processor, any smart high school student can do it in the kitchen. <laughs> or as, they, as uh, Bernadette says in Big Bang Theory, uh, don't, no, no, don't drink from that glass. Oh, no, no, it's okay. Well, well, wait, what's the problem? Oh, I couldn't remember if I washed my hands, um, you know, after we, uh, in the laboratory, we crossed Ebola with a common cold. You crossed Ebola with the comic cold. No, why would anybody do that? <laughs> well, now any idiot high school student can. <laughs> oh, so uh, maybe uh, we are in the, the biotech age as much as we are in the information age. Although the point that uh, Ray Kurzweil makes in um, his notion of exponential change is that we are seeing exponential change in biology and medicine because they've become information disciplines. So when we manipulate DNA, we're manipulating information. Anyway, uh, I'm reading that book. Uh, don't that strongly uh, recommend it. It's, I'm not sure. You know, it's kind of a laundry list of... Um, everything that's going on, which, yeah, you know, all that stuff's going on, and um, uh, it's all important, but, it, you know, if the book's two years old, it's like you already know all that. So uh, I'll let you know by when I finish the book, and I've just started Machine Platform Crowd, Harnessing Our Digital Future. Well, <clears throat> reason why I'm doing that is uh, let me get to today's subject. <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm writing a I'm writing a book, and I've got a um, opening of the book. See if I can find it. Here we go. I open the book with two statements. One is the world and we are becoming genomic clusters of interconnected fractal networks computationally generating themselves and each other. And I mean that broadly metaphorically. In other words, um, the most advanced computer chips are going to self-assemble. Uh, they're going to be too small for us to go in there with tiny tweezers and make them. Um, 
but the they will you know atomically assemble themselves into atomic precision and the other statement is now what's the implication of that uh you know an example of that is facebook so think of okay you're on facebook who are you linked to how many friends do you have i have too many <laughs> I tried to use Facebook to promote my book. So I think I have about 3,000 friends. And that way I figure if I post something, a lot of people see it. And uh, if you want to friend me on Facebook, I'm going to let you know, you know what's coming up on the radio show and stuff. But <clears throat> I, um, I more use Twitter. So on Twitter, I have um, – I follow about – I think about 80 people and – they're, you know, the people I find interesting. And so what is, well, people I've mentioned, Tina Selleck, Christine Peterson. What is Ray Kurtzfile, Stephen Wolfram, uh, Peter Thiel? What are they up to? And I'll check in in the morning and, uh, oh, you know, they're recommending this book. That's how I discovered uh, Life 3.0. And, uh, oh, how do you like that? So it's interesting that we, we find the news we're interested more from our group, maybe even than from, um, you know, the technology newsletters that I follow. So there's one other statement that begins this book that I'm working on. If you wanted to make an oak tree, you would not put a pole in the ground, nail sticks to it, and glue leaves to the stick. So <laughs> I like to do this with my students. So what would you do? You know, show of hands here. And, of course, you would, of course, put an acorn in the ground and let the oak tree make itself. Okay, we've known that since the beginning of uh, agriculture. Uh, but now we can ask, why are we making our smartphones that way? What the hell is this about? You know, you see a picture of um, Foxconn makes apples and everybody else's stuff. So Apple says, okay, we're going to come out with the iPhone X. So Foxconn will say, okay, great. We'll build a factory the size of 10 football fields and hire 20,000 people. <laughs> and you say, why, why doesn't Foxconn build a factory in the U.S.? Well, you know, labor's cheaper in China. But more importantly, could you find 20,000 people in upstate New York who can pass a, pass a drug test <laughs> and do fractions, both? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that you could hire and be available and make uh, smartphones. But I think you see a picture of that. There's a a video that I got that has an overhead view of one of these factories. And it just goes on and on and on. Thousands, thousands, tens of thousands of people in this huge space, all in there, you know, with their, those things you wear, your hair nets, you know, and, and uh, gloves, etc. to, uh, so why don't we have the uh, phones make themselves? So that's the world that we're coming up on. So that's what I was going to talk about today and uh, um, maybe another time. But um, go get my book on visionary creativity and you'll see, uh, 
you'll see what I have in mind and how I'm going to apply this to our emerging world. So uh, this is John Lovell. This is Visionaries. Hear us every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time on prn.fm, the Progressive Radio Network, and our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. See you next week.